Good morning. You made the time change. I, I, I say this every year, I think, but my father uh, did not understand, and nor do I, for that matter, or like daylight savings time. And he said that it was like cutting the top off a blanket and sewing it on the bottom to make it longer. <clears throat> Okay, so no matter where you are watching this, you're welcome to the wine and cheese people or the milk and cookies people or the pancake people, whoever. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So no matter what else you think defines you, the you that matters, your true self, your essence is pure gold. You and I have had, are having, will have an incredible journey because we are a life form composed of stardust that gives the universe a way to reflect upon itself. This story, this scientific story, the one that we're currently calling evolutionary cosmology, is becoming the foundation of religious and spiritual thinking. And it is a way to help us understand our purpose in life. As Michael Moore, whom I'm going to be talking about more in the weeks ahead, says, to be human is to give human expression to the great mystery that sustains and holds everything in existence. Now, this is very different from what most of us were brought up to believe. Whether you had religious instruction as a child or not, one of the strongest myths that drives Western civilization is that we have got to prove our worth and that there is something wrong with us. This is one of the two major shadow archetypes that grips people, that we are flawed creatures. Now, <clears throat> the religious whipped cream that gets put on top of this, I should say the Christian religious whipped cream that gets put on top of this, is that there is a God off out in heaven somewhere, and this, this God's heart has been closed to us, um, unless, and at this point, the, the recipe for restoration varies from group to group. Um, but rather than that identity being true for us, we're learning something quite different. We're learning that we are an awesome life species that brings this great mystery to, to human expression. And each of us has only one chance, one lifetime, to give expression not only to the evolutionary process that enabled the development of life, but also the mysterious power that drives the universe. And this story applies to everyone, and we are the first generation to know what we know. Four and a half billion years ago, a giant star exploded, and a long 
journey began. Every atom in our bodies from the stardust formed in that explosion through transformation after transformation after transformation led to who we are today. And we live in this expanding universe so large that our minds cannot comprehend it. So Wayne Herbert, a longtime front row attendee of Ordinary Life, is going to try to help us imagine the context in which we live. Good morning, everybody. Well, I might as well see if I can run this thing. Here we go. How many people know what that is? The Starship Enterprise, of course, Star Trek. And with Bill's talk last week, after Bill spoke last week, I said, hey, Bill, I would love to do a short piece on just what the solar system is like and what the sun is like. And he said, sure. And my interest in space got started with Star Trek. I've become pretty well read about the universe, about the Big Bang Theory, about quantum mechanics, about relativity. And so through a series of slides that I'm going to put up here, uh, I have constructed a model of our solar system to demonstrate just really how big the universe is. So before I jump into it, Star Trek was the very first TV show that broke racial barriers. You know, it wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court of the United States legalized interracial marriage in the United States. Before that time, there were numerous states that had uh, prohibitions against interracial marriage. And it turned out that in November of 1968, Captain Kirk kissed Uhuru on the lips on a TV show. Uh, but even then, they, they were playing their cards close to the vest because they didn't do this willingly. They were under mind control of aliens. They were being telepathically <laughs> controlled and forced to kiss. But it is, it really is the, uh, the first time that somebody kissed. So how big is space really? I mean, uh, this image that we're looking at here is from the Hubble telescope. And they took one-tenth the diameter of the moon, or about one-hundredth of a full moon, and they focused on that for several days on end to collect all the light that was coming in. And on that one little tiny area there, when they got through, they counted up 15,000 galaxies in that one little tiny area. So they expanded that out to cover the entire universe, and as where they're standing right now is that there are at least 100 billion galaxies out there, and maybe as many as 200 trillion. We just can't see them because of dust, because they're so far away, because they're not very bright. Okay, But uh, what can we do to try and make some sense of all of this? Has anybody ever seen this model of the solar system? I mean, anybody ever get one for Christmas or a birthday? All right, the solar system. I have to tell you, this really doesn't do justice to our solar system, or space, or the size of the sun. Anybody got any idea why the solar system was made this way? Why this model was made this way? It fit in the box. 
and it fit in the living room. When you brought, when your kid opened it up, there it was. Okay. But uh, even even in our high school, we've been shortchanged about these kinds of things, right? These posters that we had. What's wrong with this picture? Well, for one thing, the Earth is almost as big as the Sun. The, the distance between the Earth and the Sun is about the same diameter as the Sun. Jupiter's not much farther from Earth than the Earth is from the Sun. But you know what? It's all wrong. The distances are all wrong. The sizes are all wrong. Everything's wrong. So let's make a real model with the big, real planet, the planet Earth, as our starting place, okay? This is the very first picture that was ever captured of the Earth by human beings looking back at it. And it was done by Apollo 8. Apollo 8 never landed on the moon. They did everything but do it. But while they were up there, they took this picture. And this is not quite a full picture because we can see it's not quite a full moon, not quite a full Earth, but it's the very first one that came up. So we live on Spaceship Earth, and this particular picture was taken by Apollo 17, and they did manage to catch it in full Earth rise. So it looks beautiful. It looks fragile. It's unique for sure in our solar system, and so far for every other planet we've ever discovered, there's nothing like Earth. It's our home. But there's a fellow by the name of Joe Rogan. He said, if you ever start taking things too seriously, just remember that we are talking monkeys on an organic spaceship flying through the universe. And that's us. So before I get back to our model, though, I wanted to read this one thing. The, the astronaut, it was uh, Ed Mitchell, who was a lunar command pilot of uh, Apollo 14, and here's what he said. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scrub of his neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles away and say, look at this, you son of a bitch. Okay, I'll get back to our model then. So this is our Earth. It's about 8,000 miles in diameter, on average 7,915 if you care. Uh, it's about 25,000 miles in circumference. So I'd ask you, is that big? Uh, I guess it is. 7.7 .7 billion people live on it. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe it's really, really, really small when you compare it to everything else that's in the universe. And that's what we're going to take a bit of a look at. So when we're talking about size, can we really grasp how big 8,000 miles in diameter is or how big around 25,000 miles in circumference is? Well, we can. If you want to fly to Singapore, it's 17 hours and 40 minutes, 8,776 miles. So if you make that flight three times, you get to go around the Earth. It's 2,460 miles from Los Angeles to New York by air. You can make 10 trips. You go all the way around the Earth. So we can get a grasp of just how big the Earth is. Uh, we can get around it in a round trip in four days or so. 
Uh, we can actually see the curvature of the earth when we go down to the beach. So maybe it's not so big. So, onto our model. What if we made the earth the size of a golf ball? Okay, Just one little tiny golf ball. A golf ball officially is 1.68 inches in diameter. If you're playing with anything else, you're cheating. So, what we have, the diameter of the earth is 7,918 miles. A golf ball, 1.68 inches in diameter. And that means that for those who really want to be precise about it, the golf ball is 298,602,857 times smaller than the earth. So maybe the earth is pretty big. 300 million times smaller than the earth. Okay, so that's what we're going to work with. So, what about the sun then? Okay, my mom calls me sun because I'm so bright. <laughs> How big is the sun? The sun is about 864,000 miles in diameter, more than 100 times the size of the earth. And how big does that turn out to be in our golf ball scale world? Well, it turns out that that's about 15 feet. So I couldn't bring in a 15-foot weather balloon. It would have kind of filled up everything. But with luck, that's about 15 feet. So if we take our golf ball scale world and we take it and we put it up next to the sun, you can kind of see that model is a little bit off. <laughs> so the earth is very, very small, very small compared to the sun. Okay. And so if we shrunk the sun, it would be 15.28 feet in diameter. That's only about 13 feet. There's two more feet of sun lying on the floor over there. All right. How far is it from the sun to the earth? Well, it turns out 93 million miles away, 92, 956 on average if you care. And if we turn that into our golf ball model, we discover that the earth is about 1,600 plus feet away from the sun that's hanging on the wall. So could I have a volunteer that would help us with our model, and would you be willing to take this out to where it needs to be so that our model is correct? <laughs> what, I, what I need you to do is if you go over to the statue of General Sam Houston, that's over there in Herman Park, that happens to be 1,664 feet, so maybe that's a 10 feet too much. Could be about 10 feet too much. But that's where we need to take the earth and put it so that it's properly in scale with our sun that's hanging up over here. So we'll see you in a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay, you're not going to do that? All right. Well, what about the moon? Just for fun, what about the moon? Well, the moon is a little more than 2,000 miles in diameter. So golf ball scale, this is the moon, and it is four feet away from our earth. Ah, it's close, right? No problem. All right. So I'll say it again. This model is sort of wrong. No, not a little bit wrong. It's real wrong. So, okay, what have we got here? Let's take a quick look at um, 
I think that's Jupiter, isn't it? Yes, it is Jupiter. Okay. Jupiter is the largest planet in the solar system. It's about 86,000 miles in diameter. And so what would the Jupiter look like in our golf ball model? Well, I have an answer for that. This is Jupiter. There's a Jupiter. Uh-oh. There's a Jupiter. Okay, so there's Jupiter. It's about 18 inches in diameter, 1.5 feet in diameter on our golf ball model. And you can kind of see uh, the difference between Earth and Jupiter. And I'm, that, that model is kind of blown up again. Okay, so if... Uh, there it is, at a golf ball size. And if I were to ask somebody to carry this particular uh, golf ball, uh, Jupiter out to the correct distance, it would be about 1.62 miles away from the sun. And just in case you're wondering where that might be in Houston, everybody know where the Academy Sports and Outdoors is on the Southwest Freeway in between Shepherd and Kirby? If I can get somebody to drive this beach ball over there and stand in the parking lot, that's the correct distance. Now you know why they don't put the model correctly to scale. You can't get something that big in the box. So that's really basically the solar system, but I thought I'd just toss out just a couple more things. What we have here, the very nearest star to our own star, the sun, is about 4.2 light years away. It's called Alpha Centauri, which is the binary star that is out there. And just a little bit closer, there's another star called Alpha Proxima. But uh, those things are 4.2 light years away and translated into miles, uh, more than 24 trillion miles, which is a, a number I have a hard time conceiving of. So if we took Alpha Proxima and we put it out at a golf ball scale, where do we end up? Somebody's really not going to want to drive this one. 83,000 miles away. So you can put 10 years worth of driving on your car and we'll be about far enough away to get to the nearest star. So what's left? Well, what's left is how about the nearest big galaxy? I mean, there's lots of little puny galaxies. They're 20,000 light years away, 100,000 light years away, and they only, like, they're only 7,000 light years across, and they only have 100 million stars. They're puny. The big one, the big one, the nearest big one is the Andromeda galaxy, whereas our Milky Way galaxy has somewhere around 500 billion stars in it, and it's 100,000 light years across. The Andromeda galaxy is about 200,000 light years across. It has more than one trillion stars in it. So, how far away is it? Well, it's still 49 trillion miles away at golf ball scale. So, it's a, it's a number that uh, it's really just hard to imagine. So, how much is a trillion anyway? Three zeros, that's a thousand, right? Six zeros, that's a million. Nine zeros, that's a trillion. But how big is it? 
Well, 2,000 years ago, give or take, Jesus was walking around on earth. That's only 63 billion seconds. Two million years ago was the beginning of modern humans. Two million years ago, that's 63 trillion seconds. So, I'm going to leave you with the last thing here, that the observable universe is at least 46 billion light years across, which is mind-boggling to me. But when we look up at the sky out there, it kind of looks like it's all flat, all just painted on these pictures, these dots all over the place. But in reality, the, the universe is 3D. There's some stars and galaxies that are close. There's galaxies that are far away. And what this model represents here, as you could kind of see that tube, is there's actually this magnificent structure built throughout the entire universe so that even though they look like independent galaxies to us, our universe is actually composed of even larger structures of all of these galaxies coming together. And I don't want to alarm you. I really don't want to alarm you, but the Andromeda galaxy is racing towards the Milky Way right now. And in about 4 billion years, it's going to crash into the Milky Way galaxy with devastating consequences. I just don't know what it's going to be like when we're done. <laughs> so anyway, that's my model of the solar system, just to give you an idea of how large our universe really is and how tiny and beautiful and important and life-giving that our Earth really is. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wayne. We'll make a technical switch here. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I had a sneak preview of what, what Wayne was doing. So um, <coughs> some of what you hear is now is going to be an attempt to fit into this. We um, this is changing everything. What you just heard, just changing absolutely everything in terms of how we think about um, our, our religion, for example. All, all religious doctrine that we have been familiar with was conceived at a time when we didn't know any of this that Wayne is talking about. And as a matter of fact, we lived in a three-story universe. So we, we're having to rethink everything. The universe is not a tragic expression of meaningless chaos, but a marvelous display of orderly cosmos. You know who said that? Those words were spoken by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at a time when he could not have imagined, nor could anyone, the big place in which we live. We, we started talking last week about what I'm calling learning to pray the immeasurables. And um, like everything else in our religious system, we're given an opportunity to rethink these things. Uh, they were conceived by people, I'm thinking specifically of Jesus and Buddha, in a cosmos that neither Jesus nor Buddha could have imagined. So one of the things that I would like for you to hear 
is that the emerging story that I'm referring to as evolutionary cosmology has the power to heal us. And by us, I mean us at every level, from our individual selves all the way up through the various groupings we belong to, through and including the nation and the planet. And God knows we need such healing. Because, as Wayne said, from this evolutionary cosmology, there's emerging a view of human life that cannot be neatly divided according to race, ethnicity, class, or sexual orientation. There is a oneness at every level of life. And oneness is intrinsic to uh, the cosmos, which is both absolutely incomprehensible and intimately hopeful. So if we can come to see the cosmos as something in which we participate, that we're part of this evolutionary movement, that should make us feel large, not small. People who can get this astronaut's perspective that Wayne talked about are not going to draw lines in the sand and kill people simply because they're on the other side of it in one way or another. People with this cosmic perspective are not likely to look down on the earth and say, you know, that hunk of real estate is more valuable than that other one, or those people are more to be preferred than those people or whatever other divisions that we make when we are short-sighted and blind. So Wayne has given us a, time, a, a way to experience this cosmic universal perspective. That's what you and I are part of. We're part of that. If you think, and I believe we all do this from time to time, that our efforts to practice loving kindness and compassion are senseless or futile, I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us all to embrace the humility and hope that comes when we truly look upward and when we truly look inward. Because we carry within us possibilities that resonate with this cosmos, starborn, interconnected cells. Now, as you know, I'm using, broadly speaking, the teachings of both Jesus and Buddha to open our doors of awareness about what it means to live with compassion. Uh, both Jesus and Buddha taught that um, it was that to live morally is to live for others. Both Karen Armstrong and Jim Wallace, who are the two people that brought to us um, the Charter for Compassion and the Reclaiming Jesus document, clearly reflect in their work that they believe that the wisdom for our future lies in our ability to go back. That makes sense? We go forward only by going back to reclaim the values that build the kind of community that can reflect in a compassionate, loving way on the cosmos that we're a part of. Now, Western culture in general and Christianity in the West took ego development to a certain level and then considered the matter taken care of. In uh, psychology, it has been only relatively recently that much attention has been given to the various developmental models that I bring up in here from time to time. I hope you're familiar with those. Uh, 
And even then, in the early days of uh, psychological development, the focus was on pathology, on what was wrong with people, on uh, mental and emotional difficulties. And it's only been until relatively recently, this is an evolutionary thing too, that models of emotional and spiritual growth have focused on the more positive side of things. Maybe an exception to this is the Enneagram. I hope those of you who take the Richard Rohr daily meditations are aware of the fact that he's been talking about the Enneagram the last two weeks and will continue the next two. Um, but the Enneagram has very ancient heritage, even though it's still mostly unknown to most people. Those of you who have attended my teachings for the last number of years know that I have been absolutely fascinated, intrigued by the Jesus of history, by the accuracy of the historical documents that we have about Jesus, the Jesus seminar emphasis. I think this is all incredibly important as a building block when it comes to knowledge and information, but that's all about knowledge and information, which is from the neck up. It isn't about being socially engaged in a way that contributes to the healing of the planet, and that's what we have got to move into. We need something other, and I think both Buddha and Jesus and others reflect the values of that first great turning that Karen Armstrong refers to as the first actual age and what I have dubbed the evolution of right religion. Uh, I, now, I put Jesus in that camp not because of chronology, but because of the prophetic tradition within which he arose. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, the Hebrew prophets, Confucius, Laosé, others. And the, the core teaching of this religion of rightness is what we refer to as the golden rule. Don't do to somebody what you would not want done to you or do unto others as you would like done unto you. The uh, MFA here is having an exhibition of Norman Rockwell's works, and I intend to go see it, but one of you sent me this co copy of a Rockwell painting about the golden rule. I'd seen that before, but um, that's really worth paying attention to. The religions of the East, um, I'm more familiar with Buddhism than I am with, uh, with uh, others. To some degree, Hinduism uh, I am familiar with, but certainly Buddhism. They're very valuable resources for us because unlike Christianity, they didn't get sucked up in the political establishment. Christianity pretty much stopped telling people that they needed to grow and develop, uh, that such growth was a sacred responsibility and, and all that matters was, because all that mattered in developing Christianity was belonging and believing. Do you belong to this group? Do you believe these things? If so, you're okay. You don't have to worry about anything else because your treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's not about here. It's about out there. Now, to be clear, I want to say that the early centuries of the Christian movement were focused on growing. Paul refers to the gifts of the Spirit. And certain groups, such as the Desert Fathers and Mothers and various monastic groups, have persisted since the beginning. But by and large, when the Jesus movement got co-opted by the Roman government, the emphasis was belong on belonging and believing, and that was it. 
So in her book, The Stoic Steps to a Compassionate Life, Karen Armstrong reminds us that the hero in Buddhism is the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva, instead of going on to nirvana when on the brink of enlightenment, makes the decision to stay on the earth to relieve the sufferings of other human beings. So in Buddhism, that is the goal of the fully developed spiritual person to contribute to the well-being of, of others. What we find both in the teachings of Jesus and Buddha is that when people are treated with reverence, they become conscious of their own sacred worth. I see the gold in you. That makes a difference in how people experience themselves and others. Armstrong calls such behavior praying, and he, she invites us to pray what she calls the four immeasurables of love. Now, last week I introduced these. They are loving kindness. They are compassion. They are joy, and they are equanimity, or what's called even-mindedness. Memorize these. They will be on the test. Now, what all these sages taught is that doing these things, not knowing about them, but doing these things is transformative. So if you tried what I suggested last week, and take it deep, I'm going to take, suggest this week you take it deeper, you discover that this form of praying really is transformative. I see the gold in you. I recognize that in you which is sacred. Try offering loving kindness and compassion to some of the people in your circle, and you're going to see how quickly your ego rebels against that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we find it easier to love our dogs and cats than the person across the street. Of course, we easily fail to see that the neighbor across the street feels the same thing about us. So imagine this scene. You go to the grocery store. You don't have a lot of time. You're trying to squeeze this urgent errand in between leaving work and needing to be home to cook. You forgot your bag, so Whole Foods going to charge you a little bit more. So you take, your, uh, you take your bags that they put the groceries in, and you're carrying one in each arm, two paper sackfuls of groceries. And as you head towards your car about to step off the curb, someone roughly bumps into you. And you stumble in your effort not to fall down. Both bags fly out of your hands. And you know how things are going to go into slow motion at that time? And you see the contents of the bags falling out. coming. It is a perfect hit. The eggs, the tomato ketchup, the peanut butter, it's all broken. And if you were not a faithful member in ordinary life, you might stand up and say what you're thinking. What's wrong with you? Are you blind? And then you turn and you see that the person who bumped into you is blind. And it changes everything. Just like that. I'm sorry. Can I help you? 
Are you okay? That switch in compassion comes because we see the other person differently. We make a different evaluation. We make a different judgment. Okay? This is our situation. Ours individually. It's within our tribe, within our tribes, within our nation, within our, our world. Every person in this room, your teacher included, carries our own confusion and sorrow. Part of that comes from what we sometimes refer to as the human condition. Uh, we are less cavalier when our condition is, um, when it's our condition we're referring to, our failings, our disappointments, uh, our illness, our impending death, or that of someone we love. But our, our problems come to us mostly because we're blind. That metaphor of blindness appears over and over and over and over and over again in the Jesus narratives. Jesus looks at people. He sees them. He has compassion for them because they can't see, because they're blind. You know, I think one of the biggest things that evolutionary cosmology is asking traditional Christian theology to, to rethink has to do with Jesus. You know, in traditional three-story universe, Jesus and God sat up here on a throne somewhere until one day they got in a conversation and I forget which one said to the other, why don't you go down there and you try to make those people see the light and if you can't do it, or Jesus says, if I can't do it, I'll just die. I'll die for you. Make, will that make you happy? And God says, well, maybe. <laughs> Folks, Jesus didn't come down from above. Jesus came up like each one of us does. And by the way, I just want to add this because we're in the Lent Easter season. The Holy Spirit didn't come down 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. I mean, the, the, the Christian Jews did not separate from the synagogue for 30 years after the resurrection. It wasn't 50 days. And besides, the Holy Spirit didn't descend. The Holy Spirit's always been here. The Holy Presence of God has always been here. Even Augustine said the first Bible is creation. We just have to look and see the marvelous creation in which we live. Now, I remind you from time to time, I have a, a commitment to religious intelligence. So I want to say just a bit about, um, I want to put two things together. I'm going to do this very quickly because we'll soon be, be out of time. Where did Jesus get what he taught? Of course, if he drops down from heaven, he doesn't have to think about anything. He's just a conduit for God's voice. And Jesus goes through this life as God's son, and nothing's really a big deal. Even crucifixion, I got this handle, I'm the son of God, it's not going to affect me. Jesus was a Jew. He was a Jewish mystic. 
And I think this, Rabbi Jesus by Bruce Chilton, is the best constructed narrative I've ever read about Jesus, his life, formative experiences. I highly recommend this to you. This is a book about how Jewish life and Jewish teachings influence the teachings of Jesus. Now, I believe that knowing this information can create a spaciousness in us, this is what Wayne talked about, so that we can appreciate the arena within which we get to experience and express loving kindness and compassion. So both Jesus and, and his initial teacher, John the Baptist, were in the Jewish prophetic tradition, and those Jewish prophets were one of the manifestations of the first axial age of the evolution of right religion. Now, what's unique about the Jewish prophets is that they existed within their religious tradition, and they were critical of that tradition. They loved their tradition, and they were critical of it. Their motivation was not to be negative, but to be positive. We in the Western world think that if you criticize something, it means you don't love it. But a genuine prophet would say the opposite. Institutions prefer loyalists. I know I do. I mean, I'm uncomfortable when people point out my shadow, aren't you? If you're not, you're a saint. Prophets are not popular people, except on the road. Jesus said a prophet is popular everywhere except in his hometown. So in the Jesus narrative, it is the priests, the elders, the teachers of law who condemn Jesus, not the prophets. Now, don't misunderstand. There is a kind of negative criticism that is bad, but that's nothing but complaining. I don't want that. The prophetic message is not about partisan politics. That's way too dualistic. So it was during a, a painful period of exile that the Jewish prophets rose up. And there is every indication that we as a nation are in that kind of exile right now. And those allow themselves to be challenged and changed, that's folks like you and me, are the ones who can provide a light for the future. I, I, I doubt there's anybody in this room who's not familiar with the story of the time Jesus goes into the temple and turns the money tables of the money changes or everybody knows that story it's probably the act that got him executed and he was reenacting a scene from the prophet jeremiah and he was reenacting uh, uh, some lines from the prophet hosea who said god does not want sacrifice god wants Compassion. That's in the Hebrew text. Isaiah says, God finds your religious rituals disgusting unless you are seeking justice for the oppressed. Now, these prophets didn't advocate rejecting religion, but they did advocate in the, the inclusion of social justice. We've got to open ourselves to the vastness of the cosmos in which we live so that we're free to move and flow. As Karen Armstrong says, there's something wrong 
with any spirituality that does not inspire selfless concern for others. So I want to say one brief word about Buddhism and then we're going to be done because people sometimes ask, why do you talk about Buddha with Jesus so much? Well, for one thing, um, the four immeasurables of love come directly from Buddhism. And if you read Karin Armstrong's work, you'll see her returning again and again to Confucius Lhasa, but mostly Buddha over and over and over again. Why? Because in Buddhism, there is a highly developed psychology and behavioral guide for spiritual growth. It is in other, Christi in other religions. It is in Christianity, but it is not as explicitly spelled out as it is in Buddhism. In Buddhism, it is part of the foundation of Buddhist thought. The four, the four noble truths, the fourth one includes the eightfold path of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, or really don't do this, don't do this, but same thing. So here's your assignment. Should you choose to accept it? Now, as always, should you or any of your ordinary life force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions, and this talk will self-destruct in just a few seconds. Write these things down. Memorize them. Take them with you. Say them every morning. May I be filled with loving kindness and compassion. May I be filled with joy. May I know equanimity. And then when you go into your daily life, extend those things as a prayer silently to other people. Now, in this first step, just be aware of what blocks you, what comes up when you say, well, I couldn't do that to, oh, him. Just notice the blocks, that's all. Notice how your ego rebels against uh, the action that, um, even something that causes you to think um, that you're not unique, that you're not special, uh, that you're not exempt from this world's rules. I remember in 1966 when my spiritual teacher said to me, you know, Bill, so many of your problems would just evaporate if you just got it that you're not special. You're not. You're unique. You're a child of God. But you're not special because specialness separates you from other people. The rules apply to you. We all grow old, get sick, and die. This teaching from one of the great sages of the first actual age is we each decide whether to make ourselves learned or ignorant, compassionate or cruel, generous or miserly. No one forces us. No one decides for us. No one drags us along one path or the other. We are responsible for what we are. We live in a very big space. We have plenty of room in which to practice. Who knows how much time. May you be filled with loving kindness and compassion. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and I will see you here with Holly next Sunday. Thank you. <clears throat>